Hey everyone, welcome to the Kubernetes Unpacked podcast where we talk about literally everything Kubernetes related from cloud to on-prem to Kubernetes for infrastructure engineers and developers and everything in between. My name is Michael Levan and I'm joined today with Ned Bellavance, who is an independent consultant, Microsoft MVP and HashiCorp ambassador. Oh, and he's also the uh, co-host of the Day2 Cloud podcast on Packet Pushers as well. Ned, thank you so much for joining me today. Wow, thanks, thanks, Michael. Appreciate uh, you having me on the show, and I think you packed it all in there. That's I know it's a lot of uh, little salutations and signals, but I mean it's just me. It's it's Ned thirteen thirteen on Twitter. You've probably heard it before, um, and I'm excited to be on the show. Let's talk about some cool Kubernetes stuff. Yes, so this show is uh, clearly all about Kubernetes in one way or another, but today we are going to be talking about AKS and Terraform and, you know, the whole, where the, the, the Microsoft stack fits in, where the HashiCorp stack fits in, uh, and all that good stuff. So first things first, one of the things that I like to talk about right in the beginning is, what do you kind of do in the Kubernetes space today? Like, is it more content related, a little bit of consulting, a little bit of both? Uh, my primary focus right now is technical education. So that's mostly around creating content that I think will be useful for anybody who's trying to be a practitioner in the Kubernetes space. So specifically, a few years ago, I helped write a book that was introducing Azure Kubernetes service with two other authors. Uh, that did fairly well. It's a little out of date now, probably time for another edition, because as you know, everything moves lightning fast in the world of Kubernetes and in the world of cloud. Uh, but aside from that, I do have a series of live projects coming out on Manning very shortly that are going to be all around using Terraform to and Azure DevOps to deploy and manage AKS. Very cool. Yeah, you know, it's funny that you bring up the Manning thing. This podcast isn't going to be uh, let loose for probably two months or so, so I can actually officially say it where uh, I'll be working with Manning as well. And Chad Crowell on his, uh, he just did a CKA book, uh, getting started and hands on and all that stuff for the certified Kubernetes administrator. Uh, and I'm working with him on getting the labs set up like those those live labs that you were just referring to. Uh, so sure. yeah, I'm super excited about that as well. Awesome. So you said that uh, the labs that you're doing for Manny, those are all like Kubernetes specific, right? Is that what you said? Yes, they're all specific to mostly using Terraform to deploy and manage the AKS infrastructure. And some of them have you also leverage Azure DevOps for doing sort of continuous deployment uh, of the cluster itself or applications on the cluster. Again, leveraging Terraform in the background for some components of that. But I'd like to draw in some of the other components that exist within the Azure uh, ecosystem to augment what already exists in AKS. So using things like Key Vault to store some secrets, uh, using things like the contain Azure Container Registry to, shore to store all your container images and then have the ability to automatically pull those from AKS. Uh, and we can get deeper into any of the other components that you might want to deploy around AKS to secure it or provide some additional tooling. Awesome. So you, you bring up a good point here, the whole CI/CD piece. And I think this is important to point out is that with Kubernetes and with any, everything else, pretty much, I feel like you have two sides of it. You have the thing that you're creating and then you have the thing that you're managing. 
So <laughs> from a CICD standpoint, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I'd love to hear your opinion, is you know the CICD piece would really be around creating the AKS cluster, bringing it up, making sure that it has the, the proper amount of worker nodes, making sure that auto scaling is turned on, hopefully, right, from a horizontal perspective and all that stuff, and making sure those configurations are there. And then once it's kind of spun up, that's really where like the whole GitOps thing would come into play and any of like the configuration management pieces. Right, yeah, I, that is exactly where I see the handoff between a tool like Terraform and something like Argo or Flux that's gonna be doing that continuous management of what's deployed within the cluster. So if you're part of a platform team or the ops side of a DevOps team, you might want to have a really standardized way of deploying your AKS clusters. And what better way to do that than to define it in code, store it in version control, and then when someone wants to deploy a new AKS cluster, oh, just use this code that we already have out there for you, or write like a Terraform module that they can use in their code to spin up the cluster. That's, that's a good approach. Now, once that cluster is created, kind of like you said, you're probably not going to use Terraform for things like upgrading the version of Kubernetes that it's running, um, deploying applications inside of the cluster and keeping those up to date, creating namespaces, those kinds of things. That's probably going to be managed by some other piece of software. And the one that I keep hearing, or the two that I keep hearing and, and hear people talking about are Argo and Flux. Those seem to be the ones that are hey, we're going to hook this into some sort of source control, usually GitHub or something Git-based. And then there's a reconciliation loop that's happening. Just like Kubernetes has its reconciliation loop, Argo and Flux leverage that same reconciliation loop to pull the repository and do a comparison of what's in that repository to what should be deployed in the environment. And then if they detect that there's drift in it, they're going to remediate what's in the cluster to match what's intended in your code. And all changes should be pushed through that GitOps process. Awesome. Yeah, so I think you bring up well, a ton of good points there, but the two that stuck out to me was, uh, number one, make sure that for you know everybody that's listening, right, make sure that whatever you're doing in, the, in this process, if you're creating an AKS cluster, uh, from an uh, from an automation standpoint, or if you're thinking about the configuration management piece, I, I feel like in today's world it kind of goes without saying. But you always want to make sure that you're doing that from a code perspective. Uh, you always want to make sure that you're automating it and you're you know storing it somewhere where your team can use it as well. Uh, the whole manual process thing. I mean, especially in this uh, I'll get buzzwordy here for a second. In this <laughs> cloud native world that we're in, uh, there's kind of no reason to do anything from a manual standpoint anymore. Um, and, you know, when you're thinking about automation, especially with, with something like this, don't necessarily think about it like, oh, I need to automate this thing, right? Because I need to write code because that's just what people are doing now. It, think about it more like I need to create repeatable processes for my team. That way, this is actually scalable because otherwise you're going to be the person number one, you're going to be the person that everybody goes to for everything. So you, right. six o'clock in the morning, five o'clock in the afternoon, while you're on vacation on a cruise somewhere, you're going to be the single point of failure. Uh, and number two, it, it's, it's just completely not scalable in general. So if you have, if you're in a five person startup and you, you know, one person's just clicking these buttons and doing these things, it may seem like it makes sense at that point. But wait until that company gets to 20 people or 40 people or 5,000 people. It's going to get out of hand and hairy really fast. 
Yeah, and not only that, but that person who's clicking around in the portal to deploy a cluster, if they have to go do that again in a week, they can remember every single setting that they chose. I mean, they shouldn't accept the defaults because the defaults are not ideal. I mean, Abel Wang said it best, right? Never accept the defaults. And I agree with that. And the best thing to do is rather than relying on your memory, which is going to be terrible, at least mine is, I don't, I don't trust my memory. Instead, put it in a format that you can then follow and run. And yeah, I mean, you could write it all down in a, in a OneNote or something and follow a bullet point process, but wouldn't it be a lot easier to put it all in infrastructure as code? And then when I do need to spin up a second cluster and a third cluster, a few months apart from each other, I know I'm doing it consistently. And I know that I'm following the best practices because I did all my homework the first time around. And now it's just, yeah, run the script. There you go. There's your cluster. Go have fun and, and be happy. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, that definitely makes sense. I think that there is the piece of working on a team. And then there's also the piece of exactly like you just said, you don't want to have to sit there and have to remember everything. Uh, that's yeah. I mean, especially in today's world, like thinking about it from just writing down simple instructions, right? Like if we, if we think about from the, the uh, SRE handbook from Google, you know, there's this concept of playbooks and really what playbooks are, are like these instructions, but even you can take it a step further now where you can have automated playbooks with like something like Rundeck, for example, or uh, I think the other one is X matters. Uh, I've primarily used Rundeck, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's all of these ways to not have to do things manually. Uh, mm -hmm. And if you don't have the time at that point to automate it, at least write down the steps, put it into a playbook. That way you can automate it later on. Uh, and then something else that you mentioned too that I wanted to bring up was how do you, because you, you were referring to like, you know, the, the infrastructure piece would be to create the cluster and then it would hand off to whatever configuration management style platform or tool. How do you feel about the whole like provisioner block in Terraform? Now I know uh, last time I checked, like Terraform literally says in their docs, like this is a last resort and I'm pretty sure it still says that. Um, but like, do you think like, I don't know, let's say you, somebody has a manager or, or somebody in a leadership team or whatever, and they're like, okay, you need to deploy these Kubernetes clusters. We need to make this process repeatable, but we don't know how to have a million tools like because maybe the management leadership team, whatever, doesn't know that like Terraform shouldn't be doing this. They just know that, hey, it can do it. Let's just do that. Uh, what are kind of your thoughts around that? Like if somebody's in that situation, I mean, should they really push to say, no, like we need the proper tool or should they just kind of cave and, and, and use the, uh, the provisioner? I have my thoughts on it, but curious on yours. Sounds like a personal experience, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> Are you drawing from something? Maybe, maybe. maybe. A little bit. Like, no, I, I, well, it depends. If you push back or you can get fired, because like, don't get yourself fired. But uh, if you do, if you're able to make the technical arguments, I would make the tech technical argument not to use provisioners with Terraform. And that, that guidance has changed over time, right? There was a point in time where Terraform had a bunch of provisioners that weren't just remote execution file copy and local exec. It used to have specific ones for chef and for puppet because it was a very common pattern for people to try to integrate those tools with their Terraform runs. And what HashiCorp realized, and I think a lot of us realized is using provisioners breaks the declarative model of Terraform. And it also breaks Terraform's ability to check 
the status of of what is deployed in the target environment and compare that to what's in the config. Because it can easily pull cloud APIs and go, hey, what size is that virtual machine? What networks is it connected to, et cetera? And then compare that to what's in your config file. But if you're just having it run a generic script, it has no way of really knowing if that script did what it was supposed to do. It either knows that it exited with a zero code or with a non-zero code. And non-zero means it failed. But if it exits with zero, did it really succeed or did it just exit with a zero? And like Terraform has no idea behind that. So HashiCorp said, you know what? Once you get to the point that you're gonna be running a custom script, you're gonna to have to write the logic to determine whether that script was successful and what happens on a future run. So instead of having that being part of the Terraform component, maybe you build a larger orchestration pipeline where Terraform is a portion of that pipeline. So in your example, where you said, I'm, I wanna deploy a Kubernetes cluster, and then I wanna probably do some bootstrapping for it with scripts. I would think of that as two separate stages of the same orchestration pipeline. I invoke Terraform, Terraform lays down the cluster exactly as I want it. And then the next stage takes information from Terraform from the outputs or however you wanna do that handoff. And then goes out to that cluster and does the bootstrapping you want through something like Ansible or whatever you wanna to use to manage that portion of it. And hopefully that portion has a good understanding of how to get the current state of the environment, test it against what you want, and then set that target environment if it doesn't match what you want in your config. So yeah, my general advice is don't use provisioners, make Terraform part of a larger pipeline and use a separate tool or scripts that you've baked in at home in that next stage to do the provisioning or the configuration management. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you 100%. I think that there is a lot, especially in today's world, there's a lot of data and there's a lot to say about what your current state is and if it matches your desired state. And at the end of the day, if you're doing funky things like provisioners and you know throwing a bunch of duct tape on stuff, you're never going to truly understand if your current state is your desired state. And there are a lot of ways to take it to the next level of, okay, now I need to think about configuration and management. Something that, come, that came to mind as you were talking is like, even let's say you're solely focused on Kubernetes in your, in your uh, organization. You could even not even worry about, you know, oh, like uh, we don't want to bring in another tool or another platform or whatever. You know, we just got Terraform. We just got Kubernetes. Uh, what can we do with this? Well, in, in that instance, you can create your own controller. Uh, and for everybody that, that's listening that doesn't know what a controller is, it's effectively what like Kubernetes tells the API of what's the current state and what's the desired state. So, for example, there is a pod controller, a deployment controller, right? And the pod controller will say, okay, this deployment is supposed to have X amount of replica sets. And if it doesn't, it tells the controller and then the controller makes sure that all is well there essentially. But you can create your own with, you know, custom resource definitions or CRDs if you ever see that. And you could literally have your own uh, controller, your own API extension that you can tell Kubernetes this is what I need on these clusters. And the great thing about that is a controller is, uh, it, it holds the state like a Terraform TF state file. It's not a file, but it holds the actual state of what your environment is supposed to look like. So again, mm -hmm. like even taking it to that level of, hey, 
management leadership team doesn't want to bring in a, yet another tool to do something like this, you can actually work with that natively, which is very, very cool. Uh, and you don't have to worry about like going out and getting a different platform, downloading this, installing that, buying that, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. That's what a lot of the products that we were just talking about, Argo and Flux, when you install them in your Kubernetes cluster, you're installing a controller and a bunch of CRDs. It's more of an operator than, than anything else, an operator model. And the components of that is the CRD, which allows you to load, here's the status of how I want things to be. And then the controller that runs that reconciliation loop and does the get, set, and test to make sure that it is matching what you want. And it's not just Argo and Flux. If you wanted to do something like continuously check policies, OPA has a controller that you can run within the context of Kubernetes. Uh, if you wanted to, I don't, there's, you know, all kinds of validate custom validators you can put in as well to, you know, intercept API requests and determine whether or not they're valid or not before they go through. The, it, the thing about Kubernetes and the reconciliation loop is just how powerful that basic construct is. And you see people building all kinds of weird stuff on top of it. If you really want to get into a, a really interesting project, and if you haven't already had someone on uh, for this project, I'd highly recommend it. Cr Crossplane is doing some really cool stuff with custom resource definitions and deploying infrastructure as code, all from a Kubernetes cluster. And they're leveraging the API and the reconciliation loop that's just already baked in to Kubernetes. Yep. Yeah, there's so many cool ways of doing it. Uh, there's also something called Build. If you look on GitHub, it's an open source project and it allows you to like uh, essentially automate the way that you're creating CRDs. Uh, so that's, that's really cool. I know that there's a few organizations that are using that. Um, there's even something called Cluster API, which is more for like on-prem, like raw Kubernetes clusters. Maybe yep. if you're like running an OpenStack or something like that uh, and you want a way to manage like pretty much CRUD operations for all of your clusters instead of just worrying about one. There's something called cluster API. Yeah, there's there's so many options. You know, so, so that, that actually brings me to a question that I have for you is, because there are so many options that are already, you know, I don't, I don't wanna say they're out of the box because there's a lot of uh, components that go into it and there's a lot of things that you need to do to make it work the way that you want. But, you know, things like controllers, CRDs, building your own, because it's native, I won't call it, say it's out of the box, because it's native, mm -hmm. would, do you think that people should go in that direction for their Kubernetes environment versus going in the Ansible, Puppet, Chef, configuration management direction? Like, do you think it makes sense to stay native? Um, can I give the traditional answer of it depends? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's my favorite answer. It's all I give all the time. Uh, so I think... What's important to acknowledge is that you have teams that are already familiar with the tool set. And if that tool set meets the needs that they have today and what they can see going forward in the future, there's no reason you should add a new tool to the mix just because it's what people are using right now. So there are a bunch of different cloud operators that bake into Kubernetes that allow you to you know, do config management outside of the Kubernetes cluster. You can do that, but if you already have a Puppet server and you've got your Puppet agents deployed and they're all polling and you're real happy with how that's working, then don't add a new thing just to add a new thing. Keep, keep rolling with what you got. 
I think what's nice is once you already have your Kubernetes cluster up and running, um, the style with which you can deploy and maintain applications that run inside Kubernetes is awesome. I love the simplicity of it. I love being able to define things in a manifest and then keep that manifest up to date. And when I want to upgrade the version of my application, you know, unlike maybe I'd have to upgrade my puppet servers and then push out the update to all my agents, at least the upgrade for my server is just doing an update to my manifest and having it roll out. And then I can easily roll it back because it's all container-based. Right, right. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree 100%. And yeah, I have to echo what you said. Like, let's say you already have a configuration management platform that you're using and you don't already know Go or Golang, the programming language to write the, the um, custom APIs, or if you don't like fully understand the controller model, then at that point, yeah, I would say like use what you already have. But like if you're starting blank and you know Go and you understand the internals of Kubernetes and you know you're only going to need a solution for Kubernetes, yeah, it's you got you to gotta kind of pick and choose there. But I also feel like I just gave a very uh, – the 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 um the example that I just gave is pretty much never going to happen because uh, you're always going to have other stuff anyways. But you know if if you come across a rare situation like that, absolutely. And, and you know for me, it's it's always tough because that sounds like the more fun way, like building your own controller and doing all of these things. Because uh, mm-hmm. I like to play around with technology all day. But in a production level environment, yeah, like you should probably just use what's there as long as it's the right tool. Like if you just have Terraform, you got to figure out another tool for the configuration management stuff. Don't use the provisioner. But if you got that configuration management tool already there, might as well go with it. It's kind of they're all doing the same thing once you get to the end of it anyways. Right. And I would recommend against writing your own tool. Uh, I mean, it's fun to do as a side project, right? But then if you are writing that tool, you're now responsible for maintaining that tool, maintaining the security of that tool, the way that it's monitored, the way that it's upgraded, you know, dealing with issues if they come in from the rest of your team. You don't want to be maintaining this completely separate project in addition to your regular workload because you decide to write yourself. So definitely go out and look to see if there's something that already exists that does 90% of what you want to do. And chances are that thing's going to be an open source project. And if you're already in the development sphere anyway, contribute to that open source project, make it better, add the 10% that you need. Maybe there's other people out there that need the same thing. And now you have a whole community behind the solution you're using as opposed to it just being you. Yep. No, I totally agree with you. Unless you're like a Microsoft and you need to build your own stuff or you have such a unique use case that nothing exists. Yeah. I mean, it it totally makes sense to just use what's already out there. And, And I've heard, I've heard two sides. I've heard the side of, yeah, write a CRD, no big deal. And then I've also heard the side from big organizations that are like, only do it if you have this absolute extreme use case. So it mm-hmm. I, it it always depends on who you talk to, right? Because <laughs> there's right. there there are like the organizations that do like to do their own stuff internally because they 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 have such a uh, large footprint in terms of needing the custom 
ability, or I think I said that wrong, to be able to customize it in a certain way, <laughs> they need right. a, a way to do that. Uh, whereas, you know, 90, I don't know, 90% of the organizations out there are going to be perfectly fine, like you said, grabbing an open source project, either contributing it to it, or if they're not taking contributions or whatever, forking it, making it your own and going at it that way. That totally makes sense. Yeah. Cool. So with the, I mean, we talked a lot about Terraform, but there's also this other side to it, uh, the secrets management piece. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about Vault and Kubernetes? I think they should be best friends. <laughs> um, that's an interesting question because I mean, Kubernetes does have secrets already built into it that you can store information. But Vault is not just about storing secrets. It's about doing lifecycle management of credentials. It's about providing encryption as a service. So if you are interested in those features, those are things that are not baked into Kubernetes. So if you just want to store static information, static confidential information inside of Kubernetes, secrets will probably get you there. That's fine. If you have any of these other more uh, robust needs or dynamic needs, then having something like Vault in your pocket to, to meet those needs uh, is probably pretty good. And I'll give you a couple examples of things you might want to do. Uh, one of them that Vault can do is it can automatically provision accounts for a database. So you can authenticate to Vault and ask for access to a database and it will provide you, you know, a username and password and it will manage the lifecycle of that username and password. So there might be a policy that says those credentials are only good for the next hour and then it's going to be revoked. And also that policy limits what those credentials can do on the database. That's pretty nice to be able to just get a dynamic credential, do what you need to do, and then that credential it's gone. So you don't have to worry about it leaking out or anything like that. So that's one example where having vault on the side is, is pretty cool from a dynamic perspective. The other thing it can do is just provide encryption as a service. So if you need data to be encrypted, but you don't want it to be stored by vault, you can do that as well. And it will just provide the cipher for you to actually encrypt that data before you send it over to somebody else. And then that other party can reach out to Vault to get the other half of the key to decipher the ciphertext when they receive it. Um, so it provides both of those services as well. And it can do a bunch of other things. Um, another question I often get is, should I run my Vault service inside of the Kubernetes cluster? Um, yes, that is supported. It's not HashiCorp's favorite way of running Vault. Their favorite way of running Vault is bare metal. Mm. So they basically say, bare metal if you can do it, uh, VMs if you can't do bare metal, and if you absolutely have to, containers running in VMs, running on bare metal. But the more layers that you put between the bare metal and where Vault is running, the more potential security exploits might exist between those two. So ideally, they want you running it on bare metal so it's as close to that metal as it can be. Yeah, and you know, hopefully uh, nobody's going to get the pitchforks ready when they hear me say this, but I'm not a big fan of sidecar containers. Ooh. I think that, you know, you have a pod and, and really what a pod is, is it's just a container. It's an extra layer and there's a container inside of it. But once you put more containers inside of that pod, and, and I see a lot of people do this for like logging software, right? So like if they have a log aggregator, they put it as a sidecar. So there are 
special use cases where I'll say, ah, it's okay to do. But at the end of the day, it just makes more complexity. Like if anything, just yeah. if you if you want to run Vault inside of your Kubernetes cluster, run it as a daemon set. Make sure that it scales across your cluster. Make sure that it listens to the pods and pulls the logs. Because putting, you know, like imagine, let's say you have you have 50 pods. Means you got 50 instances of Vault. Well, you, and, that's when you're running Vault, uh, the Vault server itself would be its own pods right running separately right. from everything else um i think there is a vault agent sidecar pod that you can tack yes. on that will kind of do some of the authentication there um but ideally because vault supports native uh kubernetes authentication uh, the services the pods you're running will, are all going to get a service account and they can use that service account to authenticate to vault so you don't need the sidecar for there that case. Um, if you want to hear a more nuanced discussion on sidecars and especially their place within a service mesh and proxies, uh, a recent episode of Day 2 Cloud talked about whether or not eBPF can replace the use of sidecar proxies for networking. And it was a very interesting conversation. And, and the answer is maybe at some point. <laughs> I'd recommend just listening and checking it out. Awesome. Cool. Yeah, I definitely got to check out that one. I was just listening to, uh, I forget what episode I was listening to at the gym this morning, but I was listening to one of your guys' episodes. Very cool. Yeah. So, so, so what you're saying, if I understand correctly, is Vault is going to be deployed in your cluster anyways. And then the next step would be to have the sidecars running inside of your pods. Now, do you, like, is there a way to, and sorry if you already said this, but just wrap my head around, because uh, mm -hmm. I don't do Vault all that much, but is there a way to not put the sidecar container in the pod and just have the primary Vault pod listening to other pods? Like, can you yeah. can you connect via service mesh or, or from a east-west encrypted traffic perspective and all that good stuff? Sure, yeah. I mean, Vault is just a set of nodes that are going to be running the vault service and they'll be part of a cluster with one active node. And that node, the nodes could be containers running in pods. The nodes could be virtual machines. The nodes could be bare metal and they will be contacted by clients that want to use vault over port 8200. That's the standard port. It doesn't have to be 8200. You can customize it if you want. So the actual vault service can live inside the cluster. It can live outside the cluster. Um, and then the way that any clients will connect to the vault server to perform operations uh, or make use of its services is through some form of backend authentication. And that can take a whole bunch of different formats. Um, some are more human-based, like username and password, or like an Active Directory authentication, or even Azure AD. And others are more machine-based. And the, the example I gave where the Kubernetes pods are using their service account as an authentication to vault to get a policy and permissions, they can certainly do that. And that's a machine oriented way of authenticating to vault. Got it. So if the vault server is outside of the Kubernetes cluster, but the, but it needs to be able to listen to, you know, let's say all of the other, the pods that right, that it needs to be able to pull from or um, mm -hmm. send uh, keys, all of that good stuff. There, I imagine there has to be some proxy, right? Because pods can't really communicate outside of the cluster. So is there something that's still sitting in the cluster anyways? 
you'd have to put something in the cluster that is capable of proxying requests outside of the cluster to an external service. Got it. And, you know, however you want to do that, your network, the way that you pipe your network through, uh, through Kubernetes takes many, many different forms. So if you didn't want to do that, if you wanted to have something that was running internally in the cluster and is directly accessible by the pods, you could certainly do that as well, whether it's a proxy or just actually running your vault server inside that Kubernetes cluster. But then you'd have to expose it if you want anything to use it outside of the Kubernetes cluster. So we're back to networking. I think it all comes down to networking, doesn't it? <laughs> it definitely does. Definitely does. Yeah. So I, I totally agree. Uh, and it, I think that people should use Vault or or any type of secrets manager. Because uh, to be honest, like Kubernetes secrets make me feel a little bit icky. Because uh, out of the box, they use the OPAC standard, and it's plain text. It's not encrypted. So like mm -hmm. essentially, what you're doing is you're storing secrets as plain text on the cluster and then you're sending them in an encrypted fashion. But my two gripes with that are that there's essentially two ways. There's one where you have like a secrets manifest, but then the question becomes, <laughs> where do you store the manifest? Can't put it in source control. Uh, there, there is a project that I've heard about recently that I want to kind of play around with. I think it's called Bitnami's uh, Sealed Secrets which is mm. a way to store secrets inside of source control. But I feel like regardless of how good the project is, people are not going to want to do that. Um, and then the other way is via command line, like to, to create a secret, right? But then it's like, it goes back to the manual thing of somebody has to remember the secrets that they're, <laughs> that they're passing in because you can't store them anywhere. So it's like, that's why I always tell, like if somebody says, oh, should I use Kubernetes secrets? I'm like, I think you should just use a secrets manager of your choosing. If you want to use Key Vault or you want to use GCPs or, or AWS Secret Manager or wherever you're at, right? Right. Yeah. So <laughs> cool. So uh, do you have anything else that you wanted to add here? Um, I, I, there is this conception that HashiCorp is somehow, um, because they have Nomad in competition with mm -hmm. Kubernetes, but in reality, all of their products um, work alongside of Kubernetes. So you can use Terraform to deploy stuff. You can use Vault as your secrets management tooling. Uh, you could use Boundary to provide access to your Kubernetes cluster if you wanted to. Um, and you can use console as a service mesh inside of the Kubernetes cluster. So while there's maybe a bit of a perception that there's some competition there, uh, in reality, for the most part, HashiCorp just really nicely meshes with all the different things that Kubernetes can do. Um, so I, I, if you're uh, if you're looking at other things to integrate into your Kubernetes cluster, or you want to kick the tires on a few things, um, I personally am a big fan of Vault. So definitely check that out. And uh, the nice thing about that is if you are not just using a single cloud, if you're going across multiple clouds, you're no longer reliant on the secrets management solution for each of those clouds, you can use the same solution across multiple clouds, which I think is, is pretty convenient once you have it up and running. Totally agree with you. Cool. Well, Ned, thank you so much for coming on. Really do appreciate it. Is there anything that you would like to plug here? Your courses, your books, your podcast, which we've already plugged, but you can plug it a third time. <laughs> anything that you'd like uh, where anybody could find you, all that good stuff. 
I, you know, probably the easiest way to find me. I'll, I'll give two easy ones here. One is on Twitter. It's Ned1313. And my DMs are open, so you can always reach me there. Um, and if you're trying to find all the other stuff that you just mentioned, the podcast and the YouTube and everything, just go to my website. It's nedinthecloud.com. And you'll find links to everything I do as well as my blog posts up there. Awesome. Well, Ned, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. And thank you, everybody, for listening.